Welcome to the Corrymeela podcast, conversations about politics, theology, art and history. A century after the partition of Ireland, and in this first year of Brexit, I'll be talking about Irishness and Britishness with a rich lineup of guests, each offering unique insights into contemporary life in Ireland and Britain. For our first episode, we're delighted that our guest is the former president of Ireland, Dr. Mary McAleese who tells us about growing up in Belfast. Ours was a rambling house. We would call it a Kaling house. And it was a house that people just rambled into. We were hard to get out of as well. Bringing the Queen to Ireland. This was a woman who had come on a Christian mission of healing. There's no doubt in my mind about that. And the future direction she wants this island to take. If we got a United Ireland tomorrow, we'd still have to work on the reconciliation project. It will always be there. Welcome to the Corrymeela podcast. My name is Padraigo Tuma. With me today is Dr. Mary McAleese, former president of Ireland, lawyer, canon lawyer, theologian and author recently of a memoir called Here's the Story, published by Penguin Ireland. Mary McAleese, Othron, welcome and thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Corrymeela. <laughs> Good to be here. It's great you're here. Um, just as we start, Mary, where are you talking to us from? Yes, well, virtually, as I mentioned, I'm speaking to you from um, a small farm on the shores of the River Shannon, a lake actually on the River Shannon, the Upper Shannon, uh, between the um, beautiful, beautiful town of Carrick and Shannon and the lovely little village of Coot Hall, uh, where my father was raised and uh, baptised. Uh, so I'm back, I'm back where my father emigrated from. We're starting in the very place where I'd wanted us to start, which is to to look at the sense of place and belonging that you yes. write about in your book. In the book, you mention um, family connections back to the 13th century. And you talk about Belfast and Roscommon in the West and County Down. Um, why is place and uh, kind of longevity of time in place so important to you? Well, I grew up, as you know, in Belfast, and my family had almost no roots in Belfast whatsoever, neither my mother nor my father. They were not Belfast people. Uh, my mother uh, was from uh, rural County Down, uh, my father from rural Roscommon, and they gravitated to the city really for work. But they had no connections to that place, and even though its imprint was left very strongly on us, uh, Really, in many ways, a very negative imprint, it has to be said, because we grew up in Ardoyne, a place that was ravaged by the trouble, troubles and by sectarianism. Um, somehow it made life tolerable, more tolerable, that we were able to draw on other wells of experience and place. And so the Mourns were very important to us, the hills north of the Mourns, mm. the Dramara Hills, where my, 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 my mother's cousin still runs the family sheep farm that's been there for generations and Roscommon where the roots go back very very far I mean I I came back to live in Roscommon and this is where I'm you know this is where I made my home um, and all of my father's brothers and sisters all emigrated all of his neighbors with very mm. few exceptions emigrated it was poor but it's exceptionally beautiful what a gorgeous area and uh, to come for me to come back here was very important because I feel so deeply rooted here where I'm sitting um, I can look out the window across the Shannon to um, an, an old abbey that uh, which had an, uh, an abbess. Her name was Aideen. The lake shore is called after her, uh, Loch Aideen. And uh, that abbey had a very strong association with my father's ancient clan. Um, and wow. 
to realize it just, first of all, being here makes me realize the mere dot that I am, you know, on the landscape of history. Um, but also makes me realize, too, um, the importance of place and the respect for place, to love place, to have a place you can love and how bereft you are, how bereft you are if you grow up in a place you cannot love. Um, and that's what happened to me with Belfast. Yeah. I was struck in reading your book, you know, in the midst of describing the sectarianism that you grew up through in Ardoin, there's this magnificent extended family of aunts and cousins and yes. priests who were friends of the family and all of these um, people that you were in school with and involved teachers. Uh, there, the sense of community seems to have been profound in the midst of a sense of sectarianism that seems to have been an ever-present threat. It was um, very rich in family, very rich in community. And of course, in the days before these kind of facilities like talking online, people actually talked to each other um, and mm. visited each other's houses and didn't need an invitation and just rambled in. Ours was a rambling house. Sometimes yeah. uh, I think in, uh, we would call it a Kaleen house. Um, <laughs> and it was a house that people just rambled into. And yeah. um, we're hard to get out of as well. And we yeah. were, you know, putting on the tea, making the tea, making the toast, running around the corner to buy the packet of biscuits uh, for the unexpected visitors. Uh, I loved all mm. that. My mother's one of 11 children. And wow. um, most of them, um, well, they all lived in Ardoin at some stage because they grew up there. My, her, her parents had moved to the city um, when her father was uh, had, had got a job working with Barney Hughes's bread uh, as a bread man, uh, a bread server, as they called him. Mm. Um, and so she raised, my grandmother raised um, uh, her, her brood in a small two up, two down house in Ardoin. Um, wow. And like there were just dozens of us. Of my mother's siblings, she and her siblings between them, they all married quite young and they all had large families. Like they have 60 children between them. So, wow. and yeah, yes, six zero. Uh, I always say my family thought they had to increase, multiply and fill the earth entirely on their own. <laughs> and they, made the, they made a very good fist of it. And so there was this huge clan and mm. um, the clan was always on the move somewhere. Now, they mightn't have had cars, but they were just always going play. They were always, we were always colloguing, as my mother would call it, mm. um, with each other uh, in and out of each yeah. other's lives. Um, our, my grandparents, for example, visited our house every single day, every day. Um, and my yeah. grandfather would walk up the Crumlin Road. Um, he was a country man. He'd been born and raised in a farm. And he must have looked ludicrous, you know, coming up the Crumlin Road with a scythe. Uh, this was yeah. the days when a side didn't strike dread and terror. You know, he was up <laughs> to cut the grass or cut down something or other in our in our garden. Um, mm. Or and, and he did the rounds of all his children who lived close by, um, in between wow. whist drives and attending funerals, uh, because that was another big passion. Yeah, and of course, so yeah. we had we had a very rich family life, community life. It's so interesting that that comes together with living through this extraordinary. Um, burden and shock and threat of sectarianism, that there is such thriving life uh, happening at the same time. And that's not surprising. I think every family in Belfast was like that, or many of them, certainly. How do you look back to those twin experiences 
I mean, we lived cheek by jowl. We always lived in the Protestant part of Ardoin, but we lived mm. in five homes, and almost all of those homes, um, with the, from uh, my, my parents, you know, kept moving as the family grew bigger. I'm the oldest of nine, so you always needed a new bedroom every few years. And most of the most of my life was spent living in what I call the Protestant part of Ardoin with Protestant neighbours and friends, uh, and uh, many of whom, you know, were and were and remain lifelong wonderful friends. But there were others. We lived, you know, kind of surrounded by. Um, um, loyalist territory. And honestly, I do think that um, somehow they were offended by the nine children and the 60 grandchildren <laughs> in the school uniforms mm. um, who looked as if they were going to make their mark in a different way from their parents. My parents left school at 14 and 15. My dad at 14, my mom at 15. My dad became a barman, mommy a hairdresser. Yeah. And um, here were um, we were all going to the schools. We were taking full advantage, you see, you know, of free second level education and the rapid massification of third level education. And we were go- we were somehow people. There was a there was a cohort that felt threatened by that. Yeah, you know, that, um, because after all, Northern Ireland was created. Um, the British government created it as a way of protecting. In perpetuity, it seemed, um, the the, um, the plantationist Protestants uh, mm. to give them a, a little corner that they could call their own forever and they could govern as they pleased and they didn't have to offer equal or co-equal citizenship to Catholics or anybody else for that matter. Um, so um, that, that we seemed to offend that um, mm. in a way because we were a growing and um, we were a growing body and uh, we were very visible. Yeah. And uh, my, my aunts, for example, on our road, um, uh, three of my aunts uh, and one of my male cousins had little shops in yeah. a tiny little area. You know, we had two, we had, uh, two hairdressers who didn't talk to each other, obviously. And <laughs> um, we, had, um, we also had a cousin, Frank the Barber, and we had a cousin who ran a little, um, a little newsagent. Yeah. And so, um, you know, the, uh, and my aunt Kathleen, who ran a dress shop, so, like, we were really embedded in that community. Like, yeah, there weren't that sure. many shops, but, for, but there were. My family had a whole look, had quite a lot of them. Extraordinary, <laughs> Not yeah. quite a monopoly, but a lot of them at various times. In that way, it, it seems to be an introduction to a, a political citizenship as well, to be aware of these dynamics, to live through them as a child. And then, you know, you went on to study um, law in Queens in the 1970s. That seems to have been a very politicised time. Well, of course it was. Um, how did that help form your politics? I'm always very glad that I grew up on the Protestant side of Ardoin, that I didn't I didn't grow up in a ghetto mm. um, and that I had that opportunity to have friends, to be friends, um, people from right across the spectrum of political thinking within Protestantism and religion within Protestantism. That's where I first learned um, that not all Protestants went to the same church, unlike us Catholics, we all trips to the one church every Sunday, whereas my friends scattered in all directions as if they yeah. were fired, you know, from a machine gun. They all fired, they all went in different directions. And I think also somehow, and don't ask me how, but somehow the good that was in um, Christianity, you know, the idea that we had to love our neighbour, um, that did distill down into certainly into my consciousness. Hmm. That was the rallying call when sectarianism broke out. Was how do you react to this as yeah. somebody who's supposed to be a Christian? I mean, some people went for the old playbook, you know, um, the old um, paramilitary playbook. You know, yeah. you kill people, and that's how you get what you want. Yeah. You become muscular and um, vicious yeah. and mean and nasty, and and neighbor kills neighbor. 
And I really never was terribly impressed by that argument. First of all, it was very masculine muscular. Mm. And second, I couldn't see where it had actually worked very well. Um, and also it contradicted the beauty that I did manage to still see in the story of the Christian narrative, mm. the beautiful narrative, you know, of peace yeah. on earth, of goodwill, of love one's neighbor, of a God who loves us all and embraces us all, and uh, from whom from whom we get our dignity and equality of citizenship. Um, so that that part of the but that that distilled part of the narrative that I had received in my own religious formation appealed to me greatly. But it was also the very thing that challenged me. Yeah, you know, confronted with naked sectarianism and people who plain hated us because we were just Catholic, um, I had to find, I had to find some way around that. And again, as I, I'm very grateful that I had all, I had such a litany of really good Protestant friends who did not conform to um, that view, you know, of of um, Protestants as Catholic haters yeah. or Protestants as people who would deny citizenship. And voting rights. I mean, many of many of my friends took part in civil rights marches. Yeah, uh, many sure. of my friends um, were were as offended as as we were by the idea that we couldn't get jobs, that we couldn't get the vote, that we couldn't, you know, we didn't have the same access to housing. They were as offended. Why? Because they shared the same Christian sensibility. Yeah. Well, I'm going going to talk to you in a while about um, theology and ecumenism as well, because it's so clear from your friendships as a child that that gave birth to a really strong public ethic of ecumenism that manifested itself out through your presidency. But I'd like to talk about your presidency. Um, What made you want to become president or what made you think you could become president when up until that stage, nobody who'd been born in the North had held that position previously? In the summer um, of, uh, I mean, I had been as one of the people who was uh, very, very um, uh, just delighted when Mary Robinson had become president, this yeah. first woman president. I had, I had previously taken her job in Trinity College hmm. back in 1975. She had been <laughs> read professor. I became read professor, and I, I, in the summer of 97, I think many of us just assumed that she would stand again and would, of course, um, have been, you know, would have been elected undoubtedly again. Yeah. Um, and then she decided not to do that, but to go to the United Nations. So that that opening happened. Yeah. And we were, if you remember, this was 97. We did not have the Good Friday Agreement. Yeah. And um, but we were if you like, slowly making progress towards it. And uh, I had been an acolyte of John Hume's from oh, from for years from I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. And his analysis that these three sets of relationships between the people within the North, Catholic and Protestant, between North and South, between, in other words, the, the peoples of uh, cross-border relationships and the East-West relationships, that analysis of those three sets of relationships really struck me as an imperative. Yeah. And I had been working with John Hume and Jerry Adams um, on their um, helping um, in a minor way um, the Hume Adams talk. So I was immersed in that thinking. Mm. And I also, I knew the Republic very well. My father is from there. I had spent every holiday here. And more importantly, of course, I had worked in current affairs here and I had worked in Trinity College. I had also, of course, worked in Belfast in yeah. Queens and I had lived there. So, um, and I'd lived for many years um, in Northern Ireland. So I knew both jurisdictions. Yeah, and the sensibilities that happen in both. Yeah. So I had been thinking, trying to distill my own thinking as to what was needed and how, you know, how I could critique um, what was what was wrong and what was needed and how we could, with a focus on the future. 
Yeah. Trying to trying to stop this business of always dragging the past behind us so that it constantly is like a breaking mechanism on the present yeah. and you know stops the future from happening except to the extent that it replicates the past. Yeah. So that was all in my mind when Mary Robinson decided she wasn't going to run. And um then I was approached. Um, I didn't offer myself as it happened. Um, a number of people came to me um, and suggested that I would be a, a good candidate. And they wanted initially for me to run as an independent, but I knew that an independent with a very little chance. Yeah. I also had been in, a, in another life when I'd lived in Dublin. I'd been a member of Fianna Fáil. Indeed, I had run unsuccessfully as a Fianna Fáil candidate. At that time, the government um, in the Republic was a coalition government headed by Fianna Fáil in a partnership with the Progressive Democrats. So I felt that I had, if I could persuade them, then I, th- then I would believe in my own candidacy, if you like. And I felt mm. that I had a good chance to win. I, I sort of felt that it would be mine to lose in many ways if yeah. I did. And I also could see that that was a navigable path to doing what I wanted to do uh, with my life and had been doing, which was building bridges, but in a different, with a completely new platform. Building bridges was your theme, wasn't it? Yes, that's the theme I chose. Now, building bridges was the the way in which we distilled into a simple expression, uh, really a rather complicated and profound procedure, which was to try and reach out to not people that we would normally be friendly with every day and who would come to the house anyway, because that was easy, but actually the difficult one. Yeah. People who were the hardest to reach, who over their dead bodies were saying, would they ever stand in Aris and Nukta on the house of the president? Who over their dead bodies would ever cross the border? Thought the, thought that the South you know, was a Trojan horse, uh, always waiting to overtake Northern Ireland, um, turn it into a Roman Catholic Republic. All of that. We had to deal with, the, the, it was the people most estranged that yeah. we wanted we wanted to befriend. Why? I didn't want to turn them into Irish nationalists, incidentally, yeah. because I, I came from and come from Northern Ireland, as you know. Um, you know, it's uh, it's true religion really is just simply proselytizing on behalf of something or other. Um, it's a deeply evangelical place. It's a deeply proselytizing place. People befriend you in order that you know you become their you know you're you're the pet Protestant or the pet Catholic or the Catholic who you know is a unionist or the Protestant who is a nationalist. It's all about numbers, and mm. I wanted to get away from that really rather cynical um, uh, way of dealing with people. And I really wanted to just simply say a, a really a, a very obvious thing: we're going to be neighbours forever on this island. We're going to be neighbours in Belfast, we're going to be neighbours in Dublin, we're going to be neighbours in Restrever, neighbours in Newry, Armagh, Derry, wherever. And whatever our politics, we're going to be neighbours. Wouldn't life be so much better if we were good neighbours to one another? And if we could, for a moment, just stand in each other's shoes, hear each other out and accept this is how that person thinks. It's not my job to make them think differently. It's not my job to turn... Um, Protestants into Catholics or Unionists into Nationalists. It's my job as president to offer a place of hospitality where we can begin to grow simple, ordinary, everyday friendships, strong enough and robust enough to transcend difference. Yeah, I'm struck by, you know, the the ordinary everydayness of speaking about neighbourliness and yet the extraordinary and radical nature of doing that 
in a place that has been so affected by sectarianism like Ireland, North and South. And I know that you came in for some criticism by, for instance, marking the 12th of July in the Auris for the first time in 1998, just after the deaths of the Quinn children who've yes. been burnt to death in a sectarian attack in Balamoni. Yet you thought for you it was important to say we have to persevere with neighbourliness even in the face of atrocity. That particular event was um, desperately important. It was the first um, July 12th in the Arras. And I had promised when I went into the Arras that we would commemorate that day, which was a seminal day in Irish history. Uh, and we would do it together as children of the losing Jacobites and children of the, uh, the winning Williamites, the, uh, with culture and tradition deriving from that, with music, dance, poetry, song, perspective. We would share that on July 12th. Now, as you say, I was ridiculed from a height for it. And my view was the people who were ridiculing, if I had any respect for them, I might have taken them seriously, but I didn't. So that huh. didn't bother me. And we were just, we, we, we brought in the Orange Order in the Republic and said to them, here's what we'd like to do. And we'd like you to be part of it. And they bought into it, thankfully, but mm. they were skeptical. They said, you know, because they could see the body of, of skepticism outside and they thought that I would drop it. And I, I, I made a promise to them. I said, look, no matter what comes or goes, no matter what the circumstance of the context, we will do this. Why? Because in Northern Ireland, um, one of the awful things was that um, talks, for example, along the lines of peace, very often became interrupted by dreadful terrorist events, which sent people scattering back into their bunkers. And I was not going to let... Um, the men of violence and the women of violence, but the people of violence do that to our building bridge. We were going to keep on going and we were going mm. to try and build solidarity around that and build trust around that. I was not going to be scattered back into my bunker um, on, mm. you know, just because some dreadful people had visited upon the Quinn family, the most appalling um, thing that you could do to take away their lovely little children in that dreadful yeah. event. And so we checked uh, on that day with people close to the Quinn family and they came back and they said, please go ahead. Um, mm. And precisely because they understood how important it was, we were, you know, we were about the business of trying to prevent anything like this ever happening again to children mm. like the little Quinn children. Um, yeah. Too late for them, but early enough to prevent it for others. Yeah. There's a there's a phrase in Irish from um, the Dingle Peninsula for, for when you're trying to express a very particular form of trust where you say um, you are the place where I stand on the day when my feet are sore. And I'm struck by how that seems to be what you're trying to do is to say on these terrible days, the day our feet are sore, the day we can barely stand in the same place Correct. as each other, that you're asserting that that's the very time when neighbourliness is needed rather than the easier times. My memory of that day is just tears, mm. you know. Um, and we were a mixed gathering, you know, uh, literally the first such gathering of many. We had them you know, for the 14 years I was there. We had it every year. But that year was very special. Yeah. First of all, because people were quite tentative and really rather not really knowing what to expect. You know, how would it go? And, um, you know, was it possible actually to gather together and to commemorate together in a meaningful way without, um, you know, without being superficial? Yeah. Because um, that was all the big yeah. danger in Northern Ireland. That, you know, you could you could do what Seamus Heaney says, whatever you say, say nothing. <laughs> you could have a gathering that actually said nothing yeah. um, uh, and was a nothing thing. But this was a something thing. Yeah. 
And people came with their hearts heavy after the Gwyn children's deaths and, um, and, and they were together mm. and they were there to a purpose and they hugged and they cried together and they put heads on shoulders together and they held hands. And I felt it was a wonderful occasion because it showed the deep compassion and solidarity that, is cap- that we were capable of that transcended all those other labels. Corrymeela is Ireland's oldest peace and reconciliation organisation. We work with all kinds of groups to have inclusive conversations about politics, religion, welcome and change. We do this because we believe together is better. You can find Corrymeela on social media or read more at corrymeela.org. We provided some questions to support groups who wish to use this episode to start their own conversation. Find those in our show notes. You're listening to the Corrymeela podcast. I'm Padraig Tuma, a former leader of Corrymeela. And with me today is Dr. Mary McAleese, the former president of Ireland who has just published her memoir, Here's the Story. You, um, as you mentioned earlier on, you know, you were keen to look at relationships in the north, relationships between the two Irish jurisdictions and then relationships across the Irish Sea between Ireland and Britain as well. And most notably, I suppose, um, with the visit of the Queen to Ireland in May 2011. Um, In your book, you make it clear that you felt that visiting the Garden of Remembrance and Croke Park and some words in Irish were key. Can you tell us a little bit about why those public manifestations of place and language were so important in that historic visit. Yeah, first time a sitting British monarch came to visit the Republic. This was, the, you know, this was the this was the the Queen of the United Kingdom, and she had never set foot in the Republic of Ireland, and no monarch um, had set foot in a hundred years in the Republic of Ireland, and there were good reasons for that, uh, all to do with you know um, a history of you know an appalling colonization and appalling imperialization of Ireland. Um, you know, it, it, it ran deep uh, on both sides, mm. um, the estrangement. And, uh, and yet, um, I knew from, from very far out, uh, from long before I became president, that she really wanted to come, not out of curiosity. It was not just coming to be, you know, to be the, the first monarch who set foot in the, in the Republic, but she had a mission. Yeah. She's, a, she's a very deeply Christian woman. I mean, she believes in the commandment to love one another very deeply. Mm. And she was very well read on Ireland, as I discovered when I first met her in 1995. I met her two years before I became president um, and uh, around a conversation precisely about the problems of Ireland. And so I knew how deeply she felt yeah. uh, this, this fact that she couldn't go. I also realized that in coming to Ireland, uh, she was going to come really as a pilgrim. Yeah. Honestly, mm-hmm. I, would, I would use that language. She was coming uh, on a very special pilgrimage of healing. Uh, this was not just to come and take nice photographs, mm-hmm. you know, and to shake hands and to make speeches. This was to come and really deeply embed in that past, in that history, to go to where the hurt was and to show a willingness to heal. Now, she only made one speech. We knew she doesn't make a lot of speeches generally anyway. Mm-hmm. And so we knew there would be the one speech. So the, the places were important. 
The where she would go was important. The Garden of Remembrance was important. Why? Because it commemorates everybody who tried over generations to get rid of British rule from Ireland. And so to go there and to acknowledge them was going to be very important because believe me, if there was criticism of having the 12th of July at the Arras, it was nothing like um, the attitude to bringing the monarch, the British monarch, to um, to the Republic. There, yeah, there, was, there was a lot of opposition and there was a lot of um, worry that, it, that, you know, what if it went wrong? What if something happened to her? You know, security was a big issue. But I felt very strongly that when we were putting the ideas together of where she could go and, and how the visit could be presented, that the Garden of Remembrance was, you know, was really important, that um, going to Croke Park was also important yeah. because it's such a big, big feature of Irish life. And we were heading into the commemorations as well. Don't forget the century of commemorations was, come, was almost upon us. And one of those big iconic ones, of course, was the 20th of November, you know, of 2020. Yeah. And the the, the 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 killing there, and uh, the killings uh, in the in the morning by the IRA, and in the afternoon by the British forces, actually in Croke Park. So that was um, those were it seemed to me important. Also, the, the, the as I said subsequently, um, when when uh, my husband went to explain to the GAA why I wanted her to come to Croke Park, he said very simply, "The Queen is coming, and Mary wants her to see the best." Mm of Ireland. And the GAA is the best we have. And it is. Yeah, it is. And so um and the Irish language, um, I thought, you know, how how you know that awful litany of of oppression of the Irish language and suppression of the Irish language that have been part of um, our uh, the Irish experience at the hands of the British administration had caused you know untold hurt and also in, robbed us yeah. in many ways of you know the full flowering of our of our language, but it it still hurt you know there's a lot of hurt around that, mm. and I felt that if she could use just a couple of words of Irish, a few words, that that in turn. She didn't have to make a whole speech in Irish, but um, a couple of words would again be just so coming from her would be so healing. Yeah. And I have to say, in fairness to her, I made these suggestions and um, they, they all came to pass. Not always in a direct line, yeah. may be said. Yes. There was a little bit of toing and froing, but she was up for whatever was recommended by me. Yeah. I, but in, what really I um, was all, uh, really impressed by was how, how she trusted my judgment. And we set up a back channel mm. through which we, you know, we corresponded. That's how the GAA thing came about because our own channels had told me it couldn't happen uh, wrongly as it happened. I mean, when I raised the issue of the GAA and there was pushback on that from, from our own side here, uh, you know, uh, in the Republic, they weren't happy about it. And, and um, they said they would send an emissary um, to Croke Park to the leadership to see whether it was even remotely feasible and the word came back no mm. and I didn't trust it mm. I, I'm GAA to the hilt I mean I often say you know I'm more GAA than I'm Catholic you know what I, mean? <laughs> I, I'm, I know the GAA backwards and forwards I just thought no this isn't there's something not right about mm. this maybe it wasn't explained properly yeah. and so I sent my husband Martin um, and the head of the Department of Foreign Affairs, he went, he accompanied Martin to meet the leadership of the GAA, who were absolutely appalled mm. when they discovered that they had been paraphrased as having rejected the idea because it had never been put to them. The first time they heard of it 
was Amazing. from Martin. I remember, I remember watching the, the, the television coverage of that state speech and as the Queen was standing up to make her speech, it, it just occurred to me to go like, if this was coverage of a state visit of the Queen to France, of course she'd start off with some words in French. Like there would be nothing controversial or even surprising about that. It's just basic di- diplomatic gesture. And as she was standing, I thought, what language is she going to start off in? And when she started off with beautifully pronounced five words, President and Friends, I wept. And then I couldn't understand what was it in me that was so moved by hearing our language coming from the mouth of a British monarch. What was that like for you to hear that? Well, first of all, I wasn't expecting it because I, you know, I had been told quite emphatically that this idea was not a runner and precisely because she was terrified, and rightly so, that if she made a mess of it, it would add to all the centuries of indignity. And, that, mm. and, and I understood that completely and accepted that completely. Um, and so my view was the subject was now closed. But then um, she, um, well, I don't know whether she initiated this, but what happened then was um, um, I had had this conversation with her then uh, deputy personal private secretary, uh, now Sir Edward Young, and he had come to the Irish and we had discussed this and he he came back to me and he said, the Irish thing, you know, it's it's not that she doesn't want to speak Irish. It's not that. It's yeah. just the terror that the first, if, you know, if these words were wrong, everything yeah. could go pear-shaped. Of and course. I, I understood yeah, yeah. that. Absolutely sensible. And so I said, look, forget about it. But I did apparently say to him in that conversation, I'm not asking her to do a whole speech in Irish. That's only five words. Um, and and that passed off. And then I got a visit, as you do, from um, the High Commissioner to um, in Islamabad. The British High Commissioner in Islamabad is an old friend of mine, former um, British ambassador to the Holy See, called Francis Campbell, a good Northern Irish man. And um, Francis was coming back to London, and he dropped into Dublin. And, I, and he rang me up and said, I'm just dropping past on the way back to London. And I thought, well, that's an odd kind mm. of journey to be making now. Uh, but then he said he took an old raggedy envelope from his pocket and he said um, his great friend was Edward Young. And he said, Edward, just for the record, wants you to write out mm. the five words. Um, and I said straight back to him, here, hang on a minute. That subject now is closed, you know. I don't yeah. want to be looking like I'm opening this again because I, I would regard that as really quite disrespectful yeah. of the Queen if I was to do that. I said, no, it's close. He said, oh, I know that it's close. It's not for me. He said, it's not for the Queen. It's for, it's just for Edward's own. He, he forgot to ask you. You said five words. He'd love to know what they were just for the record. It's just for his record. And I said, well, on that basis, I'll write them out. But but please, that's as far as it goes. But of course, yeah, should they play me? He went straight back to Edward, gave him, and, and the Queen rehearsed yeah. the five words. And um, I, uh, until she stood up and said them, I had no knowledge for sure that she was going to do it. And then she stood up, and I swear, I, I, and in, a, in my direct line of vision, Edward Young winked at me <laughs> and laughed. There's, just, a, there's diplomacy you. for you. I mean, I, I, I got you. You're right about the impact oh of that, Porrick. I mean, people, uh, the, the, the volume of letters about those five words. Um, and people saying that they cried oh. with emotion because um, they were healing. And they, but you see, they were designed to heal. This was a woman who had come on a Christian mission wow. of healing. There's yeah. no doubt in my mind about that. 
Absolutely I mean, er not. everything you're talking about here shows the power of public gesture. And I don't mean empty gesture. I mean, um, gesture that's full of potentiality, something almost that's like a sacrament because it is doing something physical in the moment that actually changes something and has the potential to create and contain and embody further life. And that seems to have been so much of the setup in the lead into the decade of centenaries, you know, this this centenary of all of these pieces of painful history between Britain and Ireland, it seemed to me that you and your presidency and subsequently Michael D and then um, the British monarchs as well, going back and forth, that there was this um, public representation of gesture that could be almost sacramental in its capacity to hold reconciliation and to hold that up. I think that's a really interesting analysis and I love it. And the reason I love it is because for me, those iconic moments that you've described, like, for example, using the Irish language, like going to the Garden of Remembrance, like standing on the hol hollow, you know, the, the, the hallowed sward of Croke Park, looking back up at uh, the Hogan stand and, and talking about Michael Hogan. These were moments loaded with grace. Mm. So they were, in many ways, exactly that, sacramental. Wow. They were, for me, sacrament is about loading, either whether it's loading life with grace. And um, they were grace-filled. And they weren't cynical gestures. We, we've become, honestly, we've become so inured, so almost anaesthetized by spin and by, by empty gestures, by, um, you know, by things that turn out not to be real, yeah. uh, by hypocrisy, um, that we were looking in this visit for things that had absolute authenticity about them, mm. utter, utter authenticity, stripped of spin, stripped of anything except just the grace of that moment and what it conveyed. Mm and what it did to history, yeah. what it did in the present to create something new, to unleash into the future a new kind of grace. And, and I think it did that because it was, uh, because these gestures were so authentic. I had a lovely letter, I've talked about it a few times, um, I think about, I wrote about it in the book, but um, this wonderful woman wrote to me, like I had 6,000 letters <laughs> after that, Visit and the, Her Majesty the Queen had the biggest post she ever got on any state visit. Wow. It meant so much, you know, to the Irish in England too. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, who some of them had lived with their heads down for a long time. You're listening to the Corrymeela podcast. I'm Padraig Tuma, and with me today is Dr. Mary McAleese, the former president of Ireland who has just published her memoir, Here's the Story, Font Penguin.
Um, Mary, I want to turn to what you've called a potential threat to peace, Brexit. Um, you've been very critical, warning of potential drift in the peace process. Um, has it also set back relations between Britain and Ireland, given that we're talking about the kind of culmination of some beautiful moments of British-Irish reciprocality? Um, we have seen some increase in anti-Irish rhetoric from pro-Brexit politicians, even a threat to starve Ireland by Preeti Patel. Like, what do you think um, the last few years leading into, into this centenary of partition, how do you think the tone of British-Irish public conversation has gone? Brexit, I believe, to be a disaster um, in every possible way. It was not within our thinking when the Good Friday Agreement was constructed. And the Good Friday Agreement um, took it for granted that all the sides... Um, Britain and Ireland, Northern Ireland, would all continue to be members of the European Union. And that that would give us a platform mm. through which we would continue to grow this common identity. Um, and that, that uh, I mean, in John Hume's view, always his view was that, you know, that the single, particularly the single European Act um, and the single European market had really flattened the border um, and had helped to really normalise um, relationships which on a cross-border basis have become very organic, very spontaneous, very normal, very natural. And that was one of the great benefits, not just of the Good Friday Agreement, but particularly, and sometimes forgotten, of the single European market. And hmm. so if if back in 1998 we had thought that there was going to be a Brexit day, the, the agreement would have been different. It would have had to be different to build in new strengths to to to, to deal with that horrendous weakness that was coming down the line. But one of the values yeah. of membership, the common membership of the European Union, indeed, was the Good Friday Agreement itself and the process that led to it. Why? Because from 1973 onwards, Irish politicians, Irish businessmen, uh, people involved in trade unions right across all civic society sectors, um, civil servants met together on a daily basis on something to do with European business. And Irish governments and British governments grew in friendship with one another, as happens over those days. And we think of the relationship yeah. between John Major, for example, and Albert Reynolds. Those two governments, um, headed by men who were uh, pragmatists and who had uh, great trust and faith in one another, but also who could see um, a common purpose around uh, what peace could look like. And mm. so... One of my problems is when Brexit happens, those daily encounters disappear. We don't have them anymore. And mm -hmm. and they took, I mean, people were on speed dial to each other, you know, that, but that took years to establish and to build. We're going to lose all that. That is a huge volume of connectivity that will literally evaporate overnight. And we needed that. Yeah. Why? Because we are joint custodians of the peace process. And the Good Friday Agreement, although it does have the three strands and it does have mechanisms for strengthening those strands and developing them, and, and, and it has fora in which that, those strands can be articulated, they, are never, they were never road tested against Brexit. And they've, they've no. been weak enough, if the truth be told. Um, mm. And so they haven't been road tested. And that worries me. The other thing that worries me, of course, is this dreadful Tory government of Boris Johnson's, which, you know, I just find its attitude to Northern Ireland appalling. I, I was living in Britain during the time of I was living in London and teaching in London in a university there during the time of the referendum. And so I know 
from first principles, how little attention was paid to the impact on Northern Ireland. They didn't give a toss about Northern Ireland or the Good Friday Agreement, the Brexiteers, not a toss. Funny enough, in fairness, I have to say to Theresa May, she did. She thought she was one of very few politicians who even bothered to come to Northern Ireland to discuss, as an anti-Brexiteer then, the dangers from Brexit. And I have great respect for her as a result of that. But very few others Mm. did. Um, Very, very few. The only other one I can think of was Alex Hammond from Scotland. And so uh, you have a body of Brexiteers um, who were arrogantly dismissive of the impact on Northern Ireland. They didn't want to care. They didn't care about it. They actually just plain didn't care. And even when it was pointed out to them, and I went and made speeches to groups in Westminster as part of a group that got together to try and explain the impact and the dangers of that impact, we were you know, laughed at. I mean, I remember being yeah. on Sky Television mm-hmm. the night of the result. Uh, we knew we, we knew yeah. fairly early on that we were going to lose this referendum, incidentally. We already knew. And it was devastating, really quite devastating, which is yeah. one of the reasons why I got so involved. Um, I hadn't intended to get involved in anything politically, but I felt this was absolutely essential when we realised that we were in danger, you know, that Brexit was going to win. And I remember being yeah. on television and Adam Bolton from Sky News, who literally had no idea when when I suggested to him that this was going to have an impact on the peace process and the impact on the Good Friday Agreement. Northern Ireland, after all, had voted to remain like Scotland and was going to be now overwhelmed by uh, mm. the, um, the vote of England and Wales. Why did people in Northern Ireland vote to remain? Not just because they wanted to be European, but they knew how important Europeanness and membership of the union was to the peace process. They knew how important it was. I mean, looking ahead, you've been quite clear about wanting to see a united Ireland or a new Ireland at some point. Um, how do you see that happening? Do you have a time frame? Do you think Brexit has changed that? Well, I think Brexit will feed... Um, to some extent, it'll feed those that cohort of people in Northern Ireland who are not United Irelanders um, in, in any shape or form, who, who wouldn't necessarily be pro-United Ireland, but who might now consider the issue in more broad terms uh, if they could continue membership of the European Union. Why? Because in the immediate aftermath of Brexit, uh, the Brexit referendum, um, Enda Kenny did a very good day's work. He went to the European Union and he got agreement from all member states, including the United Kingdom, that if there was a referendum on the future constitution of the constitutional position of Northern Ireland and the decision was in favour of United Ireland, then Northern Ireland would would automatically segue back into the European Union. There wouldn't be a whole palaver of having to, you know, meet all sorts of targets and open and close chapters and all of that, that they would just segue straight back in to the European Union. That's a great bonus. That's a big comfort. And so, yes, I think that will play. The other thing, of course, is the demography. The demography now is marching, marching steadily towards a Catholic so-called demographic uh, which shows that well, they will have a voting majority. They, ironically, they'll probably have that voting. They'll reach that voting majority, uh, you know, in the, the, the in the hundredth anniversary of the establishment of Stormont. Yeah, and do you think you can like a united Ireland isn't necessarily a reconciled Ireland? And um, you know, nationalists in the north and nationalists in the republic um, also have beefs with each other at times about what the shape of Ireland yeah. should be. Like, how do you how do you see the journey towards a, a reconciled Ireland um, uh, happening alongside questions to do with the border poll? Well, I think the reconciliation project is a centuries-long project. I mean, it's a generations-long project. 
Um, it's a slightly different project from the United. It's more than slightly different from the United Ireland because if we got a United Ireland tomorrow, we'd still have to work on the reconciliation project. It will always be there. Um, the United Ireland project literally is a fifty percent plus one project. That's what was agreed in the. You know, one has to accept that. That is the agreement. In the Good Friday Agreement, that's what we all signed up to. Now, it would be wonderful if it was more than that. If we got to a situation where you know you had you were able to where a United Ireland was um, a ref, by referendum supported by much more than simply a Catholic majority yeah. um, or a nationalist so-called majority. That would be a wonderful thing. And it's one of the reasons why I think, as we discuss the issue of United Ireland, we have to be concerned that it is also about creating the circumstances in which it can become a reconciled Ireland, in which everybody has equality of citizenship. And so we have to think of innovative ways of meeting the needs and the desires and the wants and the identities of the people who will share that that eventually United Ireland. And one of the things that bothers me greatly is the way in which we were unable, for example, during the COVID crisis, to create an all-island strategy. Now, it made it made incredible sense to confront a pandemic that was impacting the entire island, the entire world, with a with with um, as Gabriel Scully kept telling us over and over again, um, you know, with with one with one set of answers applied to the one island. And yet that didn't happen. Now, that worries me because it didn't happen for reasons. Uh, well, I'd like to I'd like to hear those reasons articulated. I've never heard a good one articulated. Yeah. So I do firmly believe that, you know, that w- not until we get over partition and and relieve yeah. ourselves of the abject burden of partition, uh, which has been baleful. I mean, it's it's been awful. And I mean, let's face it, I mean, the unionist governments had the best part of a century to create, you know, a liberal democracy with co-equal citizenship and a happy place. And they, they really feel rather abjectly at doing that. Mm-hmm. And if you're to look at the trajectories of the two parts of the island, where did the liberal democracy emerge from? You know, where did the wealth creating... Um, stand on your own two feet, liberal democracy emerge. It emerged in the Republic. Mm. You were um, president of Ireland and not just president of the Republic of Ireland for two terms. The second term was uncontested, but people in the North couldn't vote in those elections for the president. Would you like to see that change? One of the things, I I stood in that election, I had no vote. No member of my family except one brother who lived in the Republic had a vote. And still I was voted into office, which was, you know, a wonderful thing, um, a a wonderful feeling. It would have been, it would have been even more wonderful in many ways if the people of Northern Ireland could have joined in that. But uh, that's not how it is. But, you know, people are working on that and they're trying to work up a plan. But I think that is, in in some ways, um, really... Mm. Not the, the, the it's not the big issue here. The big issue really here is how we trundle forward, knowing there's going to be a referendum yeah. coming. It has to come. It's part and parcel of the Good Friday Agreement. When the numbers are sufficient that they could possibly sustain a vote in favour of United Ireland, the Secretary of State will be obliged to call um, that referendum because that was the deal. It was the compromise deal. Northern Ireland would stay part of the United Kingdom um, for as long as that was the will of the people, but the will of the people would be tested. And here was the plan for testing it. So that has to be honoured and it will have to be honoured at some stage in the future, in my view. I don't know when. Um, I'm very glad that the government in Ireland has said 
that that they're not going to be calling for it for the next five years. I think that's very sensible. We do need to take breath. We do need to keep working on the reconciliation project. We we do still need to keep working on the trust. And we also need to have some idea in our heads what that United Ireland might look like. And how will it it, um, embrace um, a fairly significant cohort of people who uh, regard themselves as British and who will feel that they have lost. There's going to have to be generosity. What we cannot have, even though a 50% plus one will win the day, will win the day. And we accept that because that's what we that's what we signed up to in the Good Friday Agreement. How will we embrace those of us who believe in this United Ireland and who see the building together of something really quite new and strong with great heft and momentum behind it, um, how will we how will we embrace one another and how will we how will we sell that embrace to people who don't really want to be embraced who just feel they lost and will be angry and 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 upset um, so there's there's a lot of thought yeah. I think is going to have to go into what I might call the soft politics here the pastoral end of things your role as a as you know former president and as a canon lawyer and theologian a public voice in public theology in Ireland and in the broader catholic church too you know you walked away from the presidency after two terms two extraordinary terms and rather than keeping up an international profile you went off to rome to study leaving the auris for um books in rome um and uh, you know presumably essays and marking and all of the yes. things that come with that. Tell us about that. Uh, You know, what is the I mean, you've already touched on it, but your extraordinary interest and awareness in the public power of religion. And I can hear your subtlety that, you know, the public power of religion hasn't always been for the good. But you have devoted uh, enormous amounts of time um, to studying that. Well, one of the things that always baffles me uh, for a long time has been the way in which public discourse, particularly political discourse, media discourse, assumes that religion doesn't really matter, that it's an entirely privatised affair, that got bored with it, let it go away, couldn't be bothered with it, it's dying on its feet. Actually, no, it's not. Mm. Five out of seven people in the world identify as members of one of the seven major religious faith systems in the world. Most of those faith systems are ancient. I mean, they are millennia old. And they have shaped cultures all over the world. And they continue to shape cultures all over the world. I mean, we talk in the West about the the, the demise of the Catholic Church's power. uh, And it's true. People are walking away wherever there's education and wherever people know that they have the right to freedom of speech, freedom of opinion, freedom of conscience, freedom of religion. People are entitled to walk away and they do. But there are many parts of the world where those that understanding of fundamental freedom still has to reach. The Catholic Church has never been, has never had more members than it, it has 1.2 billion members today. One in six people in the world is a member of the Catholic Church. Um, it's growing in Africa. It's growing in Asia. And that phenomenon um, and, and Islam, of course, will, will quite soon probably in numerical terms, probably overtake Christianity. Uh, there's somewhere between two and three billion people in the world are Christians. Sooner or later, more actually sooner, um, Islam will, t- will take over that number. So these big Abrahamic faiths, the Christian faith and the, and the Islamic faith, are set to dominate um, the, lands- the, the religious landscape for the future. So they have to be taken seriously. And we do have to equip ourselves, I think, with the information to be able to interrogate their power, their status and their influence. Uh, They are still hugely, hugely influential 
So I mean, I, I can see, Mary, that, you know, you've been described and in the book it mentions that you've been described as a thorn of the side of the Catholic Church because of speaking about um, questions to do with freedom of conscience, questions to do with the role of women in the leadership of the church, questions to do with the visibility of LGBTQ people in the life of the church. And you continue to remain a part of the church. I mean, obviously, that's partly because it's impossible to leave, according to canon law. But but also you remain active in terms of being a voice speaking within it. Um, what keeps you um, nurtured to continue to speak from the, the point that you do speak? Well, first of all, I have great faith. I mean, I, I do believe that there is a loving God out there. And I do believe that I'm answerable to that God and that I benefit from the grace that flows from that relationship with God. So my faith is different in many ways from my religion. I'm surprised that my faith has managed to survive my religion, quite frankly. And I'm surprised that faith for a lot of people manages to survive religion because religion very often differentiates and drives us into bunkers rather than introducing us to the wonder of this God uh, whose human family is all of us, regardless of which religion we encounter. I mean, I'm very fortunate over my lifetime, and in particular since I left the Aris, um, I have lived in community with Muslims, with Jews, with Orthodox, with Eastern Catholics, with people of no religion. Um, and I've been, you know, so blessed in many ways. And I've studied with them and I've lived with them. And we have communicated and also, you know, that among the greatest friends I have yeah. um, are people of faith that when we distill it all down, we discover our faith, you know, it's pretty similar. And our relationship with God, pretty similar. Dr. Mary McAleese, president, lawyer, canon lawyer, theologian. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Um, the memoir is out now, published by Penguin, and it's called Here's the Story. Mary McAleese, many thanks. My pleasure. Thanks. Good to see you, Thorig. Our guest this week, Dr. Mary McAleese, was President of Ireland from 1997 to 2011. Her memoir, Here's the Story, published by Penguin Ireland, is available in bookshops and online. Don't forget to listen right to the very end for when Mary answers one of our very short story questions. Thanks for listening to the Corrie Podcast. I'm Padraig Tuma, and I'll be back with another episode next week. The Corrie Miller Podcast comes to you with generous support from our funders, the Henry Luce Foundation, the Fund for Reconciliation from the Irish Government and the Community Relations Council in Northern Ireland. This was a fan-fan production for Corrie Miller. Thanks to researcher and producer Emily Rawling. The podcast was mixed by Fra Sands and Safe Place Studios. if I ask you a couple of really sh very short story questions we're kind of looking for a two sentence answer I'll just ask you uh, one or two of these has anyone ever said to you that you were disloyal to your culture or identity the worst time for me was Cardinal uh, Bernard Law in um, in Boston who did say that he despaired for Catholic Ireland that I was their president and I had to remind him that I was not the president of Catholic Ireland, nor was I elected to be the president of Catholic Ireland. I was elected to be the president of Ireland. <laughs>